morning again, church. If you could please turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Last week, we started a series on the five solas of the Reformation. Solas means only or alone in Latin. And out of the Reformation came five statements of essential doctrine that in many ways summarized what the Reformation was all about. And if you're new to the Reformation, um, let me just give some very brief background. In 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther, he was 34 years old at the time, nailed 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and that began the Protestant Reformation. Now, I want to be very clear on this. The Reformation was never intended to be something innovative. It was never intended to be something new. Rather, the intention was that it would be a return, a return to the apostolic teachings of the New Testament. And here at Grace Redeemer Church, we stand in the tradition of the apostolic church. Last week, we looked at sola fide. I'm sorry, sola scriptura, scripture alone. This week, we turn to our second sola, Sola fide, faith alone, God's word, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Lord God, we worship and praise you. You are our cornerstone, the solid rock upon which we stand. And Lord God, as we look into your word this morning, we pray we would behold the wonder of the gospel yet again, this marvelous revelation that you have saved us from our sin and that salvation is ours by faith as we grasp hold of it by grasping hold of Christ. We pray, Lord God, that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would be present and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you could meet a historical figure who, for, for whatever reason, maybe it's someone you find inspiring, someone you find interesting, someone who has uh, made a great impact on the world, if you could meet a historical figure, maybe a hero of yours, who would you meet if you were given that opportunity? A couple names that came to my mind, non-biblical names, were I'd love, I think it'd be awesome to meet St. Augustine if that were possible, or to um, have a conversation with Abraham Lincoln. A couple names that came to mind for me, but who, who would it be for you if you could meet a historical figure and have a conversation with them? We're going to return to that question later, but let me just say this. The Bible is the good news that the creator of everything, God Almighty, wants to know us. He wants to have a relationship with us, wants us to walk with him. And the Bible tells us that that is possible through faith. We know God through faith. It is in faith that we trust in the promises of God, that we believe in the gospel, and that we come into a relationship with him and become his children. And so as we look at this topic of sola fide, going to look at three dimensions of faith that we see from our text. First of all, faith is essential. It's essential for salvation. Secondly, faith is a gift. It's a gift of God. And finally, biblical saving faith excludes all boasting. First of all, faith is essential for salvation. 
in order to appreciate this, you have to remember the biblical story, right? We have to go back all the way to the beginning to understand why do we need faith. The biblical story is that sin is an intruder. You could think about it as, a, as cancer in a healthy body, as poison, as, as a poison that's going into clean water. And sin has distorted and broken God's good creation. So in Romans 3.23, Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, many of the things that we hold to as Christians, um, a non-Christian would say to us, Well, how could you possibly prove that? There's no evidence for that. You just believe that in faith. But G.K. Chesterton, who's so clever with so many different things, he says this about sin. He says, Certain new theologies dispute original sin or the doctrine of original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved, okay? In other words, you may doubt everything else about the faith, but if you doubt the Christian teaching that people have evil in their hearts and that people are, incapa- are, are capable of great evil and that we are all sinners, just open your eyes and look around you. As the 20th century was starting, the Industrial Revolution was just taking off, and Many philosophers said the 20th century is going to be the century where we move past religion and we're going to get past this old stuff of war and fighting and bigotry and all of that. And of course, what happened then was the 20th century turned out to be the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. More people were killed in war in the 20th century than all the other 19 uh, together before it. And this doctrine of original sin was proven to be true Again and again, we are sinners. That's what the Bible tells us. The Puritans had an expression for original sin. They said, um, even little ones are sinners, and they called them vipers and diapers. And uh, if that's a little harsh for you, you could make it vipers and huggies or vipers and pampers. But hey, the truth is, parents, you know this. What's the, what's the very first word your child, if doesn't learn, certainly their favorite word? It's that word, No. No, my will be done is what's behind that no, even from a little one. We're sinners. Well, if sin is real and God is holy, then the primary question of your life, of my life, of any thoughtful person's life becomes, how can I be reconciled or put in right relationship with this God? How is that possible? Here's the Bible's answer. The Bible's answer is you can be restored to right relationship with your creator who made you only through the work of God in Christ, which is received by faith. Here's a diagram up on the screens to help you understand a little better what is biblical saving faith. You could think about biblical saving faith as a combination of two things, belief plus trust. Sometimes it's broken down into three dimensions, but you can kind of put two of the categories under belief. And then the other category is trust. Let me briefly talk about these. Belief. Belief is believing uh, the facts about the Christian faith, knowing the facts. As Peter said earlier, a person can be incredibly sincere in their religious devotion. But sincerity is not the test uh, uh, as to whether a person truly is a Christian, as to whether a person truly knows God. What's important is that we have to know the content of our faith. We have to know the doctrines of our faith. So as we think about biblical saving faith, the first thing we need to know is that belief means knowing the truths of the Bible, the promises of God, the good news of the gospel. 
And then the second dimension of belief is not just knowing it, but it's actually believing it. It's actually assenting to the truth and saying, I, I believe, I not only know these facts, but I believe these things to be true. I believe Jesus to be the Messiah. And I believe that he really did die on the cross and that he rose again in victory to demonstrate to the whole world that my sins were atoned for and that he is God. Faith is belief in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but that's not all it is. There's a fascinating part of the book of James. Many of you know this. Where the apostle James says, he says, the demons believe and shudder. And as a Christian, I remember reading that and thinking, whoa, wait a second. How can demons believe in the truth of the Bible? And the answer is, demons know the truth. They know that God is who he is. They know Jesus is who he is. They know the truth, but yet there is no trust. There is no obedience. There is no bowing the knee. And so for us, we can know the truth. We can perhaps even believe that it's true, but that second component of biblical faith has to be present, which is trust. Trust is the heart of biblical faith. Trust is saying, Lord, I commit my life to you. I'm no longer in charge of my life. I'm no longer trying to run my life. I am taking the hands off the wheel, as it were, and surrendering my life to you and believing who you are and what you've done and what you've said about me. That's biblical faith. It's a combination of both belief and trust. Here's four ways for you to think about biblical saving faith. I'll give you four different um, metaphors, as it were, four different explanations. Faith is the hand. It's the hand that grasps the work of Christ. All right, we reach out and we take hold of his work, what he's accomplished by faith. Another way to think about it is faith is the it's the conduit. It's the instrument through which we are connected to the saving power of what Christ has accomplished through his atonement. You can think about an electrical wire, right? We have all the wires outside here in New Jersey hanging off the telephone poles. And those wires carry electricity to our homes, but they're simply conduits. So faith is the instrument which connects us to the work of Christ. My actual favorite uh, go-to definition of faith is from the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson, who says, biblical saving faith is a living personal trust in Christ. Do you have that? Do you have a living, okay, it's active in your life, it's growing, it's developing, personal, it's a relationship, trust in Christ. Philip Ryken puts it like this. He says, faith is total surrender to Jesus Christ, a complete acceptance of of all that he is and all that he has done for our salvation. That's biblical faith. It's essential for salvation, but it's also a gift. Biblical faith is also a gift. And so often the way that we work in our lives is, um, it's, it's common to maybe, to maybe, maybe, you've at, maybe you've actually said this question. You've said, I don't know if I have enough faith. I don't know if, if God will accept me with the amount of faith that I have. The amount of, it's so meager. It's so weak. Sometimes my faith falters. Sometimes it fails. Surely, pastor, God's not going to accept me and my faith because it's not strong enough like this other Christian person that I know. And we are so quick, church, aren't we, to go to works righteousness and all of a sudden we're saying, well, I'm not saved by my good works, but we're saying I'm saved by the work of my faith 
And so we make faith a work. Here's the truth. You and I are not saved by the quality or the... You are not saved by the quality or the quantity of your faith. Do you know that? You're not saved by the quality or the quantity. It's not as though you have to reach this certain level of faith and then God says, now I'll love you. Now you've done enough. Now your belief is good enough. Or the quantity, but rather, as Peter said earlier, it's the object of our faith that saves us. Saving faith is 100% a gift from God. And one tiny little gram of spirit-given saving faith is worth more than all the faith that you can muster on your own strength. It's worth more because it's a gift from God and that faith, even the smallest amount of spirit-given faith, unites you to the work of Christ and saves you. Many, many of us love the story of Jesus in Mark 9. Remember this story? Jesus is um, going about his work. Someone approaches him, asks him to do a healing. And Jesus, uh, who's the master questioner, he knows the power of questions, looks at the person and says, do you believe? And the cry that the man gives in response is something that's resonated with so many of us because it just rings true. We know that this is what real faith looks like. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's saving faith. Not, Lord, my faith is perfect. I've got no questions. I've got no doubts. I've got no hang-ups. I believe in you perfectly, and my faith will never waver. But rather, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the cry of a Christian. Faith is a gift. It's an incredible gift. It's received, um, salvation is a gift, and faith is a gift. And that should lead us to gratitude. But pride is our default setting. And that takes us to our third point, which is that Biblical saving faith excludes all boasting. If we're honest, and I'm putting myself right here in this mix, we are always looking to boast to ourselves, to remind ourselves that we really measure up. I am good enough. I am, uh, you know, I can, I can make it to others, to our peers, to our parents, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. We are so prone to boasting and to pride. It's really interesting to watch um, as, as we go through different stages of development, how, how our pride and how our insecurity morphs, but yet how it's always present, especially when we're younger. But this one goes with many people their whole lives. They say this, am I really loved? Does anyone, does anyone love me? Am I really cared about? Especially when we're young and we're teenagers, the question is, am I cool? Am I accepted? Am I going to make it into that group? Do people like me? And then, and then we get a little older and we start to think, am I successful enough? Have I made it? Is my career going the way that I hoped it would be and how my parents hoped it would be? Then as we get a little older, perhaps we ask a question like this, does my life even matter? What impact am I making? And then as you think about death uh, approaching, especially as people get older, they may ask a question like this, Will anyone remember me? What legacy will I leave behind? And even those who make it to the very top, I've read this about so many people, including a, a magazine article on our, on our current president who said after he completes another building project and another incredible building is built, he says, okay, that's it. If that's all there is, what's next? People at the top inevitably end up saying this, is this really all there is? 
That's what they say. Is this all there is? I've made it to the top. I've made all the money. I've made all the success. Is this all that there is? And that's the cry of the human heart apart from God's grace in Christ that alone can fill our hearts. There's an insecurity and a pride within every human soul. And it is this marvelous gift of salvation which we receive through faith which totally excludes all boasting. Grace is the ultimate destroyer of pride. It's the ultimate destroyer of pride. If salvation is 99% God and 1% us, then we can still boast. And in fact, if you want to tick that um, up percentage up a little bit, if salvation is 99.9% God and 1% us, we can still boast. But only a salvation that is 100% God leaves us with no boasting. It's, and, and really leaves us free for the first time. Only God's matchless grace can slay that dragon of insecurity and pride and trying to justify our existence and determine if we've really made it and instead give us freedom. You know, God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free of all those things earlier. Uh, we will never be free of them completely in this life, but he wants us to find a level of freedom and peace that we've never had before. Jesus says this in John eight thirty six. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's what God wants for us. It's why He has sent His Son for us. Romans 3 adds this. Paul says this. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let me end with three notes of application before we go ahead to celebrating both sacraments today. I asked you earlier to think about meeting a hero of yours. Uh, Maybe a few names came to your mind. You thought about, man, it would be awesome to meet this individual. And think about if you met them, how that conversation would go. You would be honored simply to be talking to them. You, would, you wouldn't try to direct the conversation. You would sit there quietly and listen. They could talk about anything you want. You'd just be grateful for the opportunity to meet them. But then if that individual that you thought about meeting, what if they, what if they took an interest in your life? What if they said, I'd actually like to get to know you. Tell me about yourself. What if they said, I'd like to keep in touch. Can I, can I get your number, get your cell number? maybe email, let's communicate. And all of a sudden, you realized, I'm not just meeting this person. This person wants to have a relationship with me. This person cares about me. Your life would have really a whole new meaning if you met somebody like that that you loved and respected and admired so much and they said, I don't want to just meet you. I want to have a relationship with you. How much greater is God than all of our heroes? Than, than any person who has ever lived not named Jesus, who is God. How much greater is God? And how incredible as, is it that he says to us, I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to walk alongside you and, and be in your life. And that relationship is ours through faith. What a privilege. Parents, we all know this. There are two ways to get our children to obey, okay? 
One is to motivate them out of fear, which I have never done. And, um, okay, not true. Sometimes, right? Sometimes we say to a little one, hey, look, if you break the rule, there's going to be a consequence. Every good parent's going to do that, have rules, have discipline. But the other way is to motivate them out of love. Of course, as parents, we don't want to just march around all the time saying this or else. But our longing, our prayer, our hope is that our kids would want to obey because they love us. They trust us. They trust that we know what we're doing and that we have their best interest at heart. And that even though we're not perfect, we're trying to love them as best we can. People who have experienced the grace of God in their life are not people who say, God, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to earn this salvation. I'm going to have enough faith that you're going to love me. They are people who say, Lord, you have done this in my life, and I am grateful, and I am thankful, and my obedience to you is flowing from love for what you've done for me. And it's that kind of motivation that sends people to the mission field where they're going to lose their life or causes them to walk away from all kinds of privileges or do all kinds of incredible sacrifices for Jesus because they're motivated by love. And that's the kind of worshiper God is looking for, the worshiper that's motivated by love of what God has done for us in Jesus. Finally, this, one last image to close. Imagine when, when we are standing around the throne of heaven. The final day has come, the consummation, the judgment is there, and the multitudes, however big that number is, are there, and you know, Times Square on New Year's Eve looks like nothing, looks like a drop in the bucket compared to what you see, and the beauty is so incredible that you know, the best, the most beautiful thing on earth is like a child's drawing compared to what you behold. Imagine you're there. That day is coming. Imagine you're there. There will be no one present on that day worshiping around the throne who's going to say, when is this going to be over? I've got better stuff to do than be here. There won't be one person who will say that. And you know what? If, if salvation was even 1% us, there would be a sense in which we could say that. There'd be a sense in which we could say, well, I earned this. God, you owe me this. You owe me heaven. You owe me eternal life. And so I'm here now and give me what I deserve and I'll go about my business. But rather, heaven will be filled with people who know they haven't done anything to contribute to their salvation. And if, if there is time in heaven, I don't know if we'll have a sense of time in heaven or not, but if we do, it won't matter because we'll be there worshiping our God around the throne, completely in awe and wonder and gratitude and thankfulness because it's all grace. And that grace is received by faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible gift of salvation that is received by faith. I pray that everyone present would have this faith in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.